Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Thanks for that introduction, Eli, and I'm really excited that Axios has been able to partner with CNAS for this series. Um, Before we dive into the discussion, I just want to remind um, the audience that you can engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag CNAS2020, and we will do our best to respond to audience questions from that feed. Um, So uh, I'm glad to be starting this discussion um, with Richard. And our, our conversation is going to explore the shifting balance of power between the United States and China, as well as global trends in economics, security, and politics uh, during the pandemic and in the post-pandemic world. Richard, in a, a recent article for The Atlantic, you said that we are living through a period of extremely rapid, possibly epical change. Some of the themes um, from this rapid change that have come up already in our discussions today include an an every country for itself approach, border closures, export controls, competition for medical supplies, disrupted supply chains and trade relationships, strained diplomatic relationships, and intrusive health-related surveillance. In your article, you called on American leaders to create an Atlantic charter for the pandemic. What do you mean by that? And how will that address these challenges? Well, thanks. um, And thanks for moving up the conversation. And thanks again to everybody for joining us today. In this little piece I did on the Atlantic Charter, I went back and looked a little bit at um, what uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt uh, issued in August of 1941, uh, when they had talks off the coast of Canada uh, aboard a ship. And they issued a, you know, a visionary uh, statement, a charter that uh, in- contained principles for what the post-World War, War, World War would look like after the, the defeat of the Nazi tyranny. Um, and of course, that gave rise to NATO and other international institutions and in the general shape of the, of the post-World War II world. Um, and the striking thing about it, of course, is that the United States wasn't actually a war uh, at the time. This was in August of 1941 and December 7th, 1941 in Pearl Harbor. We're still some months off. But already American leaders and British leaders were thinking about how to turn this unbelievable uh, global trauma into uh, something, an opportunity to create something better uh, and something where we wouldn't see this kind of thing again. And so what I meant by... Um, an Atlantic Charter is not actually that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson get in a you know skiff off the coast of Quebec. Uh, does Quebec have a coast off the coast of Canada? Uh, but um, but rather uh, that that there be an active planning in the U.S. government for what we would like to see prevail as the exercise that we're doing intellectually here today envisions a number of scenarios. Some are more attractive. Uh, some are less attractive in terms of the world we would want to live in. And the real question for the government uh, and for all of us in national security is what are the policy decisions and measures that we should take now and soon in order to bring about a scenario that's more favorable and avoid a scenario that's less so. 
Um, and, and so that's, uh, unfortunately, I see a, a dearth of that kind of thinking because I think everyone's so caught up in the present day and everything else. Um, but that kind of foresight and, and forward thinking, I think, uh, is merited given the kind of world historical nature of the events we're going through today. And what do you see as maybe just a few key areas to highlight um, of a world that we don't want to emerge as versus a world that we do? Well, certainly uh, a world in which that is less safe for our brand of American democracy, which would include all of the freedoms that we have seen even recently, the freedom to go into the, the streets and protest to to speak uh, for or against your government or any political measure, all of the kind of basic rights and freedoms uh, that is intrinsic to the, the way of life that we have here, including our democratic practice, elections and everything else. Uh, so in a world, for example, where uh, China is uh, both geopolitically and economically ascendant, I think there's strong uh, reason to think that the illiberal nature of their uh, activities and of the regime itself would infringe upon those kinds of basic rights and freedoms uh, in the United States and among our allies. You know, so that's one. Um, you know, another is a world where no one leads on any of the key transnational issues. And actually, I think that's not very far fetched. If you look at the international response to COVID, it really hasn't been much of one. The G7, the G20 have issued statements, but no real commitments, no plans. Um, you know, certainly on other transnational issues like climate change, um, you know, you, you, you don't see much uh, going on that includes the United States. And so, you know, in a world where neither the United States nor China leads, you're not going to see enough kind of throw weight among other countries to be able to deal with some of these big issues. So that's another scenario that I think we would we would want to avoid, again, just solely in the interests of the American people. And then there are others as well. I think that scenario that you just outlined where there's kind of a fracturing, um, I, I think in some ways it's easier for us to imagine, you know, because we went through this with the Cold War, a bipolar world, that's easy for us to imagine. It's hard to really understand what a, a fractured world um, might look like, but it, it seems that uh, both the U.S. and China have taken actions in, the, in recent months that have really made them unpopular and, and not cast them in a, in a good light, for example, in, in Europe, which I, I think is not really, you know, leaning strongly either way at this point. Just for, you know, looking at Europe, um, what do you see maybe in the next uh, two to three years or, or, you know, some similar time frame um, in terms of their institutions, how they relate to the U.S. and China and the role they might take in the world? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because uh, you're actually seeing Europe step up just over the past, internally, over the past month or so, uh, in a way that I think has surprised a bunch of Europeans. I mean, the, the initial response to coronavirus was, you know, even liberal, you know, Euro-loving countries like Germany, uh, bear, barring the export of medical supplies to their uh, to, to other countries in the Schengen zone and, and closing borders to, uh, in France and in Italy and things um, without uh, consultation with others. And so that was the, the acute stage of this. And certainly if you re rewind the clock back to when Brexit might have, people thought, well, Brexit's going to lead to a Frexit and then a Grexit and all these other kinds of things. And, and, and the experience of the British seemed to have sobered everybody up and, and no one seems to be clamoring to get out of the European Union anytime soon. 
so that's you know some of the the the, the negative sort of centrifugal tendencies have subsided. But in addition to that, you see you know the the formation of this fund within the European Union to uh, help. Uh, economically and put real dollars or real euros, so to speak, um, on the table in order to help countries pull out of the recession and things like that. So um, I, I think Europe may actually come out of this more cohesive. Um, there's a separate question about, you know, what is its disposition vis-a-vis -vis China? And again, you know, the, the emotion in the national security community that watches this seems to have swung wildly from at the beginning, it was China's winning the battle of narratives because they're blaming the United States for coronavirus and they're obscuring the fact that it started there and that they covered up some aspects of it. And, and you know, ship or, you know, plane loads of goods are landing in Spain and Italy and, and Serbia and all of these things, all the way to the other side where now the wolf warriors are just angering everybody and threatening everybody over everything and Taiwan and health and all these other things. And, and a lot of that is related to what is the kind of sentiment that will come out of Europe vis-a-vis -vis China. And I think as we, as we know, sentiment, sentiment can be fickle. It can go up and can go down. I think the more important driver is going to be the economic situation that Europe is in. And the projections now show that they'll be in a, a longer and deeper recession than either North America or um, Northeast Asia. And it will be harder, therefore, to say no to Beijing or to Chinese companies or to whatever when um, the foreign ministers and the defense ministers might want to do one thing um, based on their sentiment, but the economics ministers and the prime ministers want to do something else because they're trying to generate economic growth. And so saying no to Chinese capital and markets or fearing punitive measures uh, may be hard. And therefore, on an issue like Huawei, it could be harder to enlist the Europeans than it would have been had this not happened. On the, the same topic of other regions and sort of unexpected um, phenomena that have come out of the coronavirus, um, I would say that Taiwan's rise has been very interesting. And this dovetails with a question from, a, from an Axios reader, um, which is that Taiwan's effective coronavirus response as a democratic nation combined with its transparency and the aid it has offered to governments around the world, including state governments here in the US, has raised its profile and showcased its soft power in comparison with China. What does a post-pandemic world have in store for Taiwan, which is a, a key potential flashpoint in the US-China relationship? Yeah, I think, I think Taiwan's status uh, has, and, and sort of profile have certainly um, gone up uh, through this especially also coming and drawing such a stark contrast between the difficulties of Hong Kong and a, and a flourishing, full-blown, you know, Chinese democracy in, in Taiwan. Uh, but its success in dealing with coronavirus, its generosity, things like that, I think have at a minimum made people question, you know, is it really uh, so important to Beijing that, that Taiwan not participate in the World Health Assembly? I mean, you know, this seems to make no sense whatsoever on issues much more important than how thin-skinned a government may be about the diplomatic status of an island off its shores, but rather the health of people around the world. And you look at that as one example, but of course there are other uh, international organizations and things in which Taiwan has both tried to become involved and, um, and has some, something very specific and significant to add and to contribute. 
uh, whether it's expertise or, or aid or whatever. And I think that, you know, I, I think that to some degree, the Beijing position that Taiwan has got to be treated as anathema to international organizations on transnational issues, even while it's dealing better with those issues than a lot of the countries that are members, I think that's going to be less tenable uh, going forward. And hopefully this will um, help Taiwan get a, a little bit out of the diplomatic cold there. Right at this moment, or very soon in the next few hours, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to be meeting with his counterpart uh, Yang Jiechi in Hawaii. Or, um, and what are the what are the key issues that they need to discuss given the dramatic downturn in U.S.-China relations that has come with um, the the pandemic? Yeah, part of the challenge in U.S.-China relations is always what, how do you rack and stack the issues and the priorities? Because, you know, there's a million of them. We care about the South China Sea and One Belt, One Road and the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and the future of proliferation and everything else. You can just imagine so many different things. Um, here, I think there's a, given that, you know, uh, I would suspect that anything that is constructive that comes out of this is, will focus on areas of commonality rather than just the recitation of differences, which I think are very well known to both sides in which the United States should and, and I think will hold, hold firm. I think there are two things. One is I really do believe that it's a very big missed opportunity for the United States and China to not try to work in some way together on coronavirus. You know, the, the, the sense these days seems to be that this is all behind us and, and, and all these other things, but the numbers beg to differ. And at a very minimum, um, helping countries in the developing world with, for example, the production and distribution of vaccines and things like that, because it's in our interest and it's interest of the Chinese that this that does not uh, go forward. So for all of our differences and, you know, folks have, have pointed out that, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union for all their existential clash uh, we're able to collaborate on smallpox in 1974 and some of these other things. So I think something can be done there and it should be done, you know, and then of course the other is, um, it is getting a hold of the economic relationship because, you know, we still have very high tariffs on a huge amount of Chinese goods. Um, you know, deal one or part one of the, of the trade agreement has, um, taken place, uh, but you know most of the outstanding issues that are on the table for the United States, whether it's unfair investment rules or subsidies to state-owned enterprises or theft of intellectual property or you know technology transfer, these kinds of things still are still are there, and we're never going to solve all of those. Some of those are structurally intrinsic to the, the the Chinese economy, but I think we could make some progress on some of them if we sort of do it right. So I would think that those would be the the two that, that uh, the Secretary of State could bring up. Okay. Um, still on, on the U.S.-China relationship, um, you have talked about uh, previously globalization uh, in a post-pandemic world. Some people are saying that what, we're really entering a period of deglobalization. Um, how will the U.S.-China, the, the topic of decoupling and deglobalization, um, how will that inform how the U.S. and China envision a post-pandemic world and their relationship with each other in it. Yeah, I don't think that there's going to be deglobalization. Um, that you know, there was a form of deglobalization after World War One, um, and it took decades to get back up to. But absent some sort of war like that, God forbid, 
you know, the, the economies of scale and the principles of comparative advantage and things uh, haven't gone anywhere. And those economic principles will still make it much costlier to uh, produce everything at home if that's what a country decides that it wants to do. I mean, really, the alternative um, will be, do we want higher prices for less uh, quality goods and services uh, than we would have if we were able to trade and have financial flows? So to the degree to which the economic drivers of, motiv- of globalization are still there, they're going to be there, but, but they're changing to some degree. So for example, you know, those, you know, the, the, the fragile nature of supply chains, for example, if, if, if a company had a, a plant in Wuhan, China, but had moved it to New Rochelle, New York, it wouldn't be a whole lot better off in terms of a virus shutting things down. The issue is not, don't just have one source of, of, of supply in, in, in some places. And then in, in a place like China, the risk is not just health issues, but also the political risk now that goes on top of this, both from the way the Chinese deal with, uh, with companies in their own uh in their own country, but the, but the policy measures the United States has taken. So I think what you're going to see is the movement of some production um, and then some targeted areas, domains, especially in technology, that either through business decisions or through policy decisions pull the United States and China apart. What I think that's going to leave, though, is a, still a huge amount of economic interchange here. So it won't be deglobalization because, you know, it, it's extraordinarily unlikely that it, that we will produce everything that we want to make and consume in the United States. But it also won't be decoupling. It's not going to be a broad scale decoupling of the US and China economies, again, because it would be so costly to do. And, and, and instead, I think you're going to see a more limited, more tailored form of globalization. You may see things made abroad, but closer to home. Mexico is hoping to be a huge beneficiary of the US-China clash. Uh, other countries in Latin America. Same thing is true, of course, in Vietnam and Bangladesh and others. Um, and then there are a lot of things that we will continue to buy and sell uh, with each other. And um, so uh, I, I think you'll see a more limited one. That then will give more space, actually, for China and, uh, and, and the United States to be at loggerheads more frequently because you will have less of the sort of corporate ballast that at least in prior decades kind of push them together when things were getting hot. Um, You mentioned earlier um, about institutions and creating institutions, but but what we've seen um, from the U.S. just within the past few weeks is um, you know, a, a withdrawal um, from or a potential withdrawal from the World Health Organization by the U.S. What alternatives does the United States have to withdrawing um, from from the World Health Organization? Um, and what should we, how should we address concerns? Um, this, is, this question is, is from a, a Twitter user just now. How should we address concerns about China's push to shape the narrative inside of and spoken through international institutions? Yeah, so on the first question on the WHO, I mean, the alternative, if the United States wants to provide aid to other countries uh, that it otherwise would have gone through the WHO is to try to push that through non-governmental organizations or through some forms of direct direct uh, support. I I think that's going to be less efficient, less effective. I mean, there's a reason why the WHO does what it does. Um, But that, but that's the alternative. Uh, So I think it's unfortunate in that respect, I would have liked to see the United States stay in, particularly at this moment in health history, actually, you know, 
uh, up the amount of emergency aid it gave to the WHO and, and challenge other rich countries to do the same thing. Again, focus mostly on the developing world where uh, you know, production and distribution of vaccines is, and, and therapeutics is going to be a huge problem and a huge challenge. But of course, we are where we are. So the alternative is to try to go outside and around the WHO. I mean, this is another example of the kind of, you know, repeal without replace um, approach, which I think is unfortunate in a lot of ways. It's always great if you have a better alternative, but if you don't have a better alternative and the one that you're in isn't great because the undue Chinese influence is inefficient, well, well, then you stay in and you try to fix what you've got. And, and that's, that wasn't the case here. You know, the, the second question about China, rising Chinese influence in international organizations, I think, is a real phenomenon. I mean, we have at CNES, we had a, a publication that came out cataloging a lot of this um, at some great length and looking at the number of positions that have gone to Chinese nationals, for example, and the kind of um, diplomatic offensive that China has made effectively uh, in international organizations. But again, it gets back to what are the available alternatives? And so... Uh, if China, you know, the alternative is not for the United States to pull out of these things and seed the ground for China to have even more influence. It's to contest within these organizations um, the agenda that we disagree with when China puts it on the table and to come in with our own affirmative agenda around which we can attract member state support. Um, in the absence of the United States doing that, there's not very many other countries that are able to marshal that kind of multilateral support. China has a very narrow view of what it wants to do, but it's more active in that space. So I think we need to get back into that space ourselves and not leave this as, a, as an empty playing field, so to speak. Yeah, um, we have just a, a few more minutes um, for the, the final question. I would like to bring it back home again. Um, in recent weeks, we've seen protests against racial discrimination around the U.S. and in some capital cities around the world. Part of the backdrop uh, is the pandemic, because that has disproportionately harmed Black communities in the United States. It, it's clear that these protests are part of our discussion about America's role in a post-pandemic world. You, you mentioned earlier um, that we're showcasing or trying to showcase that we, uh, you know, the, that the U.S. allows protests to go forward, um, that we don't allow our military to be politicized, even in the middle of a pandemic. And we know that China is watching from many statements made by um, Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials, by Chinese diplomats. This should be uh, a, a time when U.S. democratic principles are, are being showcased around the world. And I know that you've written about this recently. How can the U.S. national security community center its focus in a way that integrates civil rights at home with its leadership abroad. Yeah, I think the first step is to recognize that almost all of us are often more comfortable and used to thinking about, you know, protests abroad and rather than protests at home and, uh, and you know, the problems with civil liberty or human rights abroad rather than civil rights at home and things like that. But the, and, but the second part of this is to look at the history of, of U.S. foreign policy all the way back to our founding, um, the ra racism against African-Americans has harmed the United States and its standing in the world, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, where you know, otherwise sympathetic British said it's awful odd for those American, you know, those Yankees to be uh, calling for their own freedom while they enslave people in the same colonies they wish to liberate. Uh, you know, all through the 1960s and the worries in the Johnson administration about 
um, how in what was then called the third world, the images of blacks in the South being denied their voting rights, being set upon by police and dogs and things like that would play um, when the, these countries were seen as, as contested between communism and, and democracy. So how do we square our own belief in promotion of democracy and human rights and the standing in the world that we believe in part derives from that with his own, this history of, of racism and, and things like that. Um, part of it is to deal with the problem, deal with the problem itself. Th that's, th that's not the best reason in the world to, to deal with the problem of racism. It's like reason 21, right? I mean, the, the reason is because of the in intrinsic, you know, integrity of all human beings and the way should, we should want to treat each other in our society. Um, but I think we do have to acknowledge and recognize the fact um, that this, kind of thing is damaging to our standing in the world. Uh, you know, the protests were on the front page of North Korea's national uh, newspaper that, you know, every country in the world would love to point to the United States as a fractious, divided, hypocritical kind of country that can't get its act together, but loves to preach to others. All right, well, let's, let's start proving them wrong. You know, let, let's, um, take some of the measures which are now being debated all over the place about police and institutions and language and, and, and diversity and things like that and improve our own records so that we are a model for other countries to emulate rather than something we have to try to explain away as just one flaw among many. Um, thank you for those, for those thoughts, Richard, and um, for your, your look at what we're gonna be facing together in the next few years. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.